0: Welcome to the Insurance Brokers Podcast with your host, Sarah Meyerskoff. This business podcast is for ambitious brokers determined to grow their business. Our guests are highly experienced industry experts and innovators. This is the place to leverage their success, learn how to break through barriers to growth and discover a community of support and ideas whilst growing your business.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Insurance Brokers Podcast. On today's episode, we're delighted to be speaking to Andrew Sparrow. Andrew is the MD of Fidentia Insurance. Andrew has a long and varied uh, history in the insurance industry, and today's podcast is primarily around the impact of COVID, Brexit, and the tech transformations ongoing in Lloyds. Good afternoon, Andrew. Thank you very much for joining us on the Insurance Brokers Podcast. It's great to have you here with David and I.
0: Good to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: So um, we've sort of broadly covered in previous conversations some quite interesting topics that I think would be great to talk about here. And I would like really to start maybe with an overview of you, Fidentia, life as you know it now, how it's changed in COVID, and uh, generally your thoughts on that?
0: Okay, fine. So, Fidentia um, was a business that uh, I set up with my business uh, partner back in the summer of 2013. Um, We'd previously been working in the Lloyd's market for um, another Lloyd's broker, but we decided to make the break on our own, along with some uh, colleagues that worked uh, there as well. Predominantly, um, we had a book of uh, UK and European business, which we were fortunate enough to bring over with us when we set the new business up and have developed that in the seven years, the first seven years of Fidencia, seven and a half years now, actually. So uh, we're Lloyd's brokers. um, We have cover holder status at Lloyd's as well. And then latterly uh, in 2019 and 2020, we successfully set up and had authorised a subsidiary company, a subsidiary broker in Ireland for our European business, uh, which probably around today accounts for around 15 to 20% of our revenue. So that was an important part of the book and therefore we needed to be Brexit ready. So that was that was a good achievement and um, we were pleased to get that underway for the 1st of January.
1: Yeah, I can imagine.
2: Yeah, I was just going to ask before we go into Brexit, that, what sort of driven your growth in that seven and a half years, Andrew? I mean, it's a great base to bring a book, but where, how do you start from there to to build a business?
0: Good question. I mean, I think we were lucky enough to have uh, a, a plenty of relationships that existed already that we were able to maintain. So that was that was obviously a good start to the book. But predominantly, you know, it's been um, we've identified a few niche areas. Um, of business that we we branched into one example of that is um, wine we, we ensure a lot of uh, wine for people who collect and store and use it as an investment together with wine traders uh, and that that kind of uh, instigated from uh, a long-standing client of ours who was a bonded warehouse uh, keeper and ended up so we, we did a deal with them and they introduced us to various of their clients. So that was, that's a sort of an example of a niche area that we try to develop, and that's grown quite well in the last three or four years. Other than that, um, I think our growth has been broadly organic um, through the, the classic word of mouth, referrals, recommendations. Uh, we have got a few people that have joined us um, with books of business that they had, where you know they felt the time was right to move on. Uh, we have felt that there's been a a kind of a move uh in the london market in particular with individuals kind of feeling a bit disaffected with a large broker environment and probably preferring to you know maybe try their luck in a in a smaller medium-sized uh london broker lloyd's broker so we've benefited a bit from that um and then generally as i say just the organic stuff
2: i mean that's probably the way most brokers grow in some ways do, do you do it how can i proactively or or, you know you have relationships and things just happen or do you have you know do you consciously ask for a referral at every meeting and that kind of thing um
0: I think that's been something that we've been probably um a little bit benign on I mean I think you know that's probably benign maybe not the right word but we've probably not been as proactive on on that you know driving a strategy if you like for new Mm -hmm. business as we could have done and that's been something that we've grappled with in recent times, I mean, the last year, with obviously the, pande- the pandemic and the disruption and the working from home, things have been much more focused about defending and retaining and keeping the renewal book going, uh, because new business opportunities have been stifled a bit in that in that period. But generally, um, you know, we have we've tried to look at niche, as I say, niche opportunities and, and push those through. We've had some success, but I think generally, um, and this may be the case with many independent brokers. We've probably needed to have more of a clear cut strategy for that. And I think, you know, whilst we've grown well, we've certainly grown um, satisfactorily, we're looking at that as something we need to perhaps adopt a more structured and strategic approach to.
2: Interesting, you talk about niches because that's, you know, that is very much the word at the moment. I think a lot of people are beginning to realize that a complete generalist, it's difficult to. Position yourself with a USP and then you finish up selling on price and, and that, you know, ultimately yeah. isn't where you want to go. Yeah. So you you just followed existing relationships and existing expertise and sort of broadened out a niche from that rather than deciding, I don't know, we're gonna go into wine and then finding the expertise, as it were.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean,
2: a lot of our, a lot of these things have kind of, you know,
0: we've kind of stumbled across, I suppose, is probably the best way of putting it, you know, things have cropped up from time to time conversations have taken place with, you know, existing connections, we've tried um, uh, with some success, but again, some something we could look to develop, we've tried the introducer model. So we've, you know, we've identified personnel and people that we know, not necessarily from within within the insurance market, but outside as well that have, you know, decent connections, which, um, you know, might fit with the sort of profile of client we're looking to, to service. So we've, we've, we've tried to, to, you know, open doors on, on, you know, with people that we trust on an introducer basis. But I think, yeah, I think generally, David, we've, we have come across things without having pre-planned them and just try to make the most of those opportunities as, as they've arisen. We're trying to we're trying to do more of affinity business. We've got one large affinity uh, book of business, which is a decent revenue. But again, that's, you know, that's kind of a, a bit of an outlier at the moment. And we may be looking to do more of that.
2: It makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? If you, you know, I suppose it's being nimble enough as a business to recognize you've stumbled across something and then follow down that track quickly yeah. and effectively. That's right. That's right. Well,
1: This concept of nimbleness keeps coming back in all of my podcasts, and I'm genuinely trying to coin the term nimbility. I think it's excellent.
0: Nimbility. It's
1: a good one, isn't it?
0: It is a word. It must be a word.
1: Well, if it's not,
0: I'm having
1: it. it. Yes, I am. Just on that, I did um, one of the first podcasts I did was with um, Peter Cullen, and he said, and it stuck with me, and I've had this conversation with lots of different brokers, just be top three in something. And actually, when I've I've done a few podcasts with some of the consolidators as well, and when they are looking to buy brokers, they're looking for specialisms, top three in something, doesn't matter what it is. Uh, So it's just this concept of niche keeps coming back. And I think it's um, quite interesting. And my understanding of the Lloyd's market generally is it tends to be more niche or harder to place risks and that kind of uh, stuff as well. So it fits quite well. Are you wholly Lloyd's?
0: No, we're not. We tend to use Lloyds more for our overseas business. So, um, I mean, I, I should have mentioned earlier, actually, we also have uh, some guys within the team that do some North American uh, business as well. They've got very long standing relationships with cover holders over there. So, we do, you know, we, we tend to use the Lloyds model and the Lloyds market for the non UK business and where we've got binders uh, or where we've identified the need for binders for certain books classes or or, or, you know areas of business then then the binder model again does gravitate more so to to Lloyd's they're much more adept at that you know for the most part our, our corporate book our commercial client book is outside of Lloyd's in the typically the company market
2: yeah and your client sort of profile you know one gets carried away with London market but it's it's probably not that different to a provincial insurance broker it's Mid-sized companies, yeah, doing what
0: yeah, they do. Yeah, it can be. Yeah, it it, it is, uh, David. It's it's uh, corporate customers from very, you know, quite a different number of uh, business sectors. That can be logistics, that can be hospitality, property owners, or whatever. Like, you know, the the broad brush of of classes, and they can be ranging from five to ten grand premium spend up to you know well into uh, six figures. So. You know, it is a it is a quite a, a broad spread of, of different client client sizes and and mm-hmm. business sectors, but we also do um, mid and high net worth private lines, uh, business, ha- homeowners business, and we do, as I said, a lot. of The, the wine thing, uh, with the private wine collectors, was something that sat quite well with with our collectors of other business. So we do uh, art collectors, sculptors, and things like that. So. That in the mid and high net worth uh, part of the book was a was a good fit with the with the wine business, and, and again, that's something we've identified we're quite good at. We've you know we've developed products and wordings of our own, so you know you're trying to make it niche so that you have that little bit of an edge over over a competitor.
2: And when you've in, you know designed products and wordings of your own, that then is placed presumably via a binder. You're not trying to negotiate a composite market to use yours. You're-
0: yeah, that's right.
2: Yeah, that, that would
0: gravitate to a binder a line slip, some kind of facility um, yep. where you've got that agreement with, a, with one provider.
2: And you find, sort of morphing into the, the Lloyds market and the ease and the technology changes that are happening there, you find it easier to set up a binding authority with Lloyds than with a company market. I'm guessing because of the, the niche nature of the cover rather than because the admin procedures are easier because they're not. Is that true?
0: I think the driver of it really is the appetite within the marketplace. So, you know, we do have binders in the company market space, but you tend to find that you have to work harder to find the appetite in the company market generally. That's our experience anyway. Uh, Where you've got something, particularly where it's, a, a new idea or it's something that you're trying to launch, you know, maybe from scratch even to try and develop a new book of business, you know, you do come across some hurdles in the company market for minimum premium levels because they're not so, in our experience, they're not so um, adept and experienced on on putting binders together. They are much more, it has to be in their sweet spot for them to, to consider it. Whereas Lloyd's does binders much more widely, tend to have a wider appetite base and therefore, you know, you actually find in the right market for a binder tends to be in the lloyds market because of the special you know the specialisms and the the harder to place business
1: just morphing on that point into sort of the future of lloyds and the transformations going on there i've had some interesting conversations around that can i ask what your experience and expectations i suppose are in terms of in terms of those transformations and uh, administrative uh, pain points and things like that
0: yeah, I mean, we've we've attended. You know, Lloyd's has put a lot of effort and resource into the future of Lloyd's model, and we've attended a number of the the webinars that they've presented. And you know, it's clear that this is going to be a pretty wide-ranging, end-to-end transformation that they're trying to introduce into that market, which is you know, which is a huge undertaking because Lloyd's is known as being a bit of, you know behind the times and 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 a bit sort of ponderous and slow to. React. So uh, they are they are really having a go at this. Um, From our point of view, you know, it is going to make quite a lot of changes, and it it might even result in some brokers, some London market brokers, having to change their operating systems. It might even sort of, you know, the tentacles might even push into how you actually run your business internally, and whether that is going to be a an operating system that is compatible with that trade in the lawyers market. So they're, they're all things that one needs to consider. As a cover holder and as someone that runs binders, again, that they are clearly making or trying to make that easier to trade with them. The, the presentations are clearly all about digitalizing the data, uh, single keying of information, holding you know databases within lawyers that's accessible to various parties, various stakeholders, so that it's you know makes the process easier. The placement processes are being transformed. We're signed up. Uh, as for dentia to one of the uh, electronic placing platforms that they've uh, got, which is White Space. Uh, there are a few others, but we, we're going with White Space, which we have used, uh, and that's you know that's actually proved to be quite an interesting, and, and we were pleasantly surprised actually as to how straightforward that was to to place business within that. So, in you know, a working from home environment, that has been pretty crucial, having that capability. But, you know, the the, the future of Lloyd's model is going to take time. It's probably going to be, I I would say, at least towards the end of 2022 before I can get some real traction uh, to get people signed up and trading on it. But it is the way it's going to go. And and there's no doubt about it in our minds that Lloyd's are not looking to spend all this time and effort only to change it and try something different. I think they're actually going to bet all of their, you know, their investment on it to make it work one way or another. So brokers have to go with it.
1: One of the, um, having spoken to a few people on on the various work streams within the Future of Lloyd kind of bigger project, just gives you some idea of how extensive these changes are and and they're looking at every different um, sort of element. And uh, I was talking to uh, Mike Keating on the um, LMA DARE 6.6 project yeah um i don't know if you're a stakeholder in that and getting involved in some of those um project meetings
0: i am not yet um sarah but i have been approached quite recently by an underwriter that we deal with uh, at munich re actually and he's flagged it and that's the first time i've actually come across this dare project so not something i know a great deal about um, but it has been flagged up by someone that we would that, you know he's looking to get brokers to to buy in on it um Yeah, but I don't know a great deal about it as yet.
1: Well, when we um, put this podcast live, I will have the link to that in it because we've obviously mentioned it. And I'll send it to you as well because it just is one of the workflows. But I think it, you know, it's looking again. I think the word that Mike used was they're looking at blue skies, but in a practical way. So, you know, how can we be drastic, but actually make it happen rather than get stuck in the conceptual Uh, planning phase so I think it's really interesting one of the things that you touched on earlier which I'd be really interested to talk about is Brexit and your planning of Brexit and and what you guys at Fidentia have done and you touched on it earlier can you give us a bit more of your thoughts on that and and how this the the Brexit plan is going to pan out for you guys
0: yeah. So, uh, as I said before, we've, we've um, had a long history of um, placing typically property business, but other classes as well, uh, from Europe into Lloyds. Um, that's, been a, that's been a key part of our book of business and has grown you know, quite well. So, we travel to Europe um, as regularly as, as we can to service it. And again, that business comes in typically directly from policyholders to us. We don't tend to get that from introducing brokers or, or, or retail brokers um, that's not to say we don't get any from retailers but very very small amount currently so we obviously identified that brexit was going to be something quite impactful on us and we decided to try to do this on our own um, and i understand from uh, from feedback in the Broking fraternity that you know we're actually probably in the minority of brokers of our size that have actually done it without any outside um, involvement, including brokers buying, you know, a, a European-based intermediary to, to to just solve that problem. So we set a company up from scratch. It's a wholly-owned uh, subsidiary. It's uh, subsidiary. It's based in Ireland. Our finance director uh, spends some of his time in Ireland. Um, he lives in um, uh, in Killarney in the southwest, um, and comes to the UK part of the week, and had been doing that for some time beforehand. So. It was the obvious place for us to try, um, and he was did most of the heavy lifting on the Central Bank of Ireland application, which took a long, long time. Um, but we finally got there. We got the formal um, approval for Fidenture Island towards the end of 2019, uh, with the withdrawal the transition period then having been agreed for a further 12 months. That was kind of just left for, for a period of time. And then we ramped up the preparations in the autumn of 2020, ready for the first of January, in the expectation that there wasn't going to be any deal for financial services to carry on with their passporting. So um, that's now up and running, and we are using that and, and trading through that with our European business. As far as plans are concerned, I mean what we the plan is to bed down what we have at the moment, but we are actively considering talking to brokers. That might be, you know, UK-based brokers that may not have enough European business to justify the cost and time and effort to, to actually set something up, but that might want to have some kind of um, continuity for those clients they might have in the European Union, European um, areas or European Union. So it's something that we're looking to develop an offering for others as well. Once we once we bed down our own uh, book of business and and look to you know look to grow that and get some value from it.
2: Absolutely. from a from a practical point of view, you've presumably now done a couple of renewals uh, through it how's that worked? Has there been any practical difficulties I, I mean I assume the work still happens in your office in London as it did before
0: that's right yeah um what we did um what we did was we we organized what we call a, a it's called in the trade a reverse branch so Fidentia London becomes a branch of Fidentia Island. Yeah. So therefore, we were able to uh, set it up in a way that allowed uh, the staff to, to continue working with the clients that the clients have already been, been used to dealing with. So the clients saw very little change apart from the name on the paperwork that they were receiving from us. Uh, so we did it in a, in a pretty sort of seamless, non-impactful way for the clients. Um, but obviously, you know, it's, it's resulted in um, second lots of databases. It's a, it's a new company. It's a new set of banks and everything else that goes with, with running a second business. But, you know, we see that as a kind of a bit of pain at the outset, not least to defend what, we've, what we already have. But, you know, as I said, to, to look for opportunities to provide solutions to other people that might be looking for, mm-hmm. for something there.
1: Are you happy for me to put Fidentia's details in the show notes for any brokers out there that are struggling with that problem now? Maybe just have a conversation with you?
0: Um,
1: I would have no objections
0: to that, uh, Sarah. I think the only thing I would say is just qualified by the fact that we're probably not going to promise we're ready to service outside business right now. So we don't want to promise something that we can't deliver now. But we certainly are looking to have a proposition ready for probably for the spring, you know, at the latest, let's say. And we can, um, you know, we'd be happy to, to talk to, to anyone who, who wants to, um, you know, to inquire on what we can do for them. You know, It could well be something that has a value to brokers. Um, as I said, it's a, it's a decision as to the, the upside and the downside, whether you're prepared, you know, whether you have enough business to justify it. And if you don't, what do you do with the business that you want to carry on servicing? And we might be able to help there.
1: I think that's really interesting. So, um, you know, I'll make sure that we highlight that because if there are any people out there struggling, maybe just to be able to have a conversation might be sort of mutually beneficial. So, no, that's incredible. Thank you. No worries. Uh, In terms of the world we are living in at the moment, and I don't dare mention the C word, and I obviously mean COVID, what do you think the impact of COVID has been when you add it to the Brexit changes to all of the transformations going in to Lloyd's. Tell me about how COVID's affected you, your trading and, and sort of wider market uh, trends.
0: Yeah. Um, it's, it's a, yeah, it's a great question. I mean,
1: I think for us as
0: a London broker, London-based broker, possibly more so than, than regional-based brokers, but certainly not you know, exclusively so, we've always benefited from having that physical close proximity to the London market to the Lloyd's market and, and having the availability of regular face-to-face meetings with underwriters decision makers uh, and, and in the London market you know you are you tend to be able to uh, speak to decision makers in the head office you know of an AXA or an Aviva uh, pretty quickly and the whole working from home transformation, you know, obviously, took that all away from us. So we probably lost quite a lot in terms of the, you know, our ability to actually trade and negotiate as effectively as we thought we could before face to face. So that was a that was a huge transformation for us. But that apart, I think I think as a business, and probably many many businesses like us, you know, maybe had a similar approach that. We didn't really use the work-from-home model very much before March 2020. You know, there are 15 of us in the business, so it's not a huge business. And um, we'd introduced it in fits and starts, but only quite sporadically and quite infrequently because we always believed that the work, the working in the office was the only way to work. And, and you know, in, in the London market, you were getting the best value out of it because you were there and you were seeing people and you were available all the time. So there was probably a certain amount of naivety and maybe skepticism about the work from home thing, but you know that's what happened we were all forced into it and we have been very surprised at how we've been able to make the change and still keep the lights on you know still keep the service levels pretty decent so I think for us it's been a you know an awakening of actually what's possible working remotely and I'm sure that's the case for many many businesses and I do believe that even when the life starts to be, you know, to return to some normality, that there will be a hell of a lot of businesses that will allow staff, a significant amount of staff, to carry on working from home, at least for some of the week, because it's been proved that it can work.
1: What, what are you guys going to do?
0: We haven't actually made a decision yet, Sarah, but I, I suspect we're probably going to be bullied into letting people working from home regularly. So that's probably what's going to happen. And, you know, if you if you'd would have had this conversation a year ago, I'd have been very, very sceptical that it actually can work. But, you know, it, it does work. It has been shown to work. And people probably, if anything, work harder from home than they may even do in the office space. So I think we've all had a bit of a, an awakening and a, a learning piece there through, through the last 10 months' worth of experience.
2: Do you think both Zoom... Mm-hmm. And what we were talking about earlier, the trading platforms, are they going to change the room at Lloyd's? I mean, is there any real need to go and sit in a queue anymore?
0: Well, that's true. I mean, that's, that's, that's another good question, David. I think um, Lloyd's, has, they, they have made some changes to the, to the underwriting room. I've only actually been into the Lloyd's building once since March last year. It was like a passport office with Perspex shields everywhere, you know, where you'd normally just sit next to an underwriter at a, at a desk, you know, there's Perspex Shields everywhere, so it, it, it looks quite ridiculous, really, or very different, at least. They have set up smaller areas, breakout areas, negotiating areas, more open areas, but I suspect they're going to have to make some changes because I just don't think that there'll be, the, the, you know, the need for people to physically sit there like they did before as, as often as they did. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think some changes are going to be inevitable, But what that looks like, I I just don't know yet. Um, I I do think that, that, you know, there will be probably more structured approach to, for example, uh, during when when the, you know, when we were approaching September last year and there was a possibility of people returning to the offices then, they were allocating classes of business to days of the week. So, for example, they might have Monday is non-marine Tuesday might be aviation, Wednesday might be motor or or something else. So they were going down the route of actually pigeonholing certain classes for for the visits. But who knows? I think changes are inevitable, but I just don't know what that looks like yet.
2: Do you think with the use of the platforms, sort of the savvy brokers will develop new tricks? If if previously you got the best rate by having the best relationship, do you start having to get the best rate by having the best presentation on a trading platform? i don't know um, I think I think the
0: whole dynamic of, of trade will change uh, and um, you know I think the London market definitely seems to me to have much more of a feel of scale matters size matters so you're right in the, in the suggestion there that you know brokers with a, a, a relationship or a size of book of business will, will still get the best the best terms that that, I'm sure that exists and probably will exist but you know I think I think it is true to say that you know you have to be more savvy in the way you operate and I think you need to be getting your information from your client understanding what their business is about asking the right questions and putting your presentations together in a coherent inclusive way and I think that's probably going to to be of much more benefit going forward than it, than it has done. I think certainly in the London market I think there've been a lot of there's been a tendency to be a bit sloppy about the information and and just literally passing something from one place to the other without intervening or quality checking or doing much with it. So I think you're right that that could well be a feature going forward.
2: And on the connectivity <laughs> of the platforms that they're creating to brokers systems I mean are they connecting it to you know the standard provincial ones like Acturis and OGI and so on and and if so do you again between that and Zoom eventually is there any reason why a provincial broker couldn't quite easily be a Lloyd's broker I think there's there is a chance that um, you know they they might
0: I, I think the Lloyd's model has Their distribution, um, certainly the information we've had from Lloyds over the last year or two, is that they are trying to push the cover holder model as a means of distributing their products out into the marketplace. So um, I do believe that they are looking to make that easier, that the the digitalisation and transformation is part of that, and and it certainly will make it easier. But I think that... um, I think I think the only the, the large barriers for a provincial broker is probably the learning piece of how to interact with all of the accounts and settlements and the paying of the premiums, the collecting of the claims and setting your bank accounts up in a certain way. They're all quite specialist things that, that are quite different. And even brokers like us that have been in the market for a long time, we sometimes have trouble with that because they they come up with changes and you know upgrades that are that are difficult. So But I think in terms of the pure trade and the access and and, and means of doing business, then I don't see why some provincial brokers will have an interest in, you know, going to Lloyds directly.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I think it's a really interesting topic and I'm quite interested to see not just the Lloyds market, not just the wider insurance market, but actually the sort of global economy and the changes that are coming Uh, particularly I think in SME markets, the entrepreneurial sort of startups are coming thick and fast now and I just think the next five to ten years are going to be really interesting to see where we land for a whole host of reasons so yeah quite glad I'm not uh, my kid's age because I don't really want to be trying to buy a house in five to ten years time.
0: Absolutely um, I think I think the other thing that we've noticed as well, just on the topic of entrepreneurs and and people making startups, I think I think if there was, the, I think the market dynamics would change quite dramatically, and and I and I would also see much more of a space for smaller independent brokers. I, I do believe that because I do think that smaller independent brokers do tend to be more savvy with their clients, um, probably. There, I say, work harder for them because they have to. I just think that probably what we need to, to be careful of is that one of the big burdens for the smaller brokers, the medium-sized brokers, is the regulatory and compliance uh, landscape. And um, that is something that has become increasingly more burdensome. So I think if, if London, Lloyd's Market, provincial markets, insurers everywhere in the UK particularly, if they can actually make sure that the regulatory and compliance environment is proportionate, there to protect the policyholder at all costs, but they need to try to carve away some of this layers upon layers of red tape and bureaucracy that I think drives brokers and underwriters, mm-hmm. you know, to distraction. Mm-hmm. So those are are the things that I see as being a barrier to you know, a few more smaller entrants coming in and making a difference, which I think ultimately would be to clients' benefit. They would have more choice. They would have, I think, more people that are very much focused on their needs. And, you know, it would be ironic if a a compliance and regulatory environment was ultimately to be the barrier to the client having more choice themselves. So that, to me, is a huge aspect on the the whole entrepreneurial start you know startup
1: i'm quite interested in how insuretech is going to change that landscape because one of the conversations i've had recently is about how there's some playing around with algorithms for, for an underwriting perspective um, and you're hearing about insure tech startups all over the, the place now and i think um I think that they might change the entire chain, the entire way that that we do business. So um, I I think entrepreneurial uh, streak plus uh, digital transformation, technology, plus COVID. I think COVID has pressed fast forward massively on all of these things. Yeah. I think it's going to be so interesting to see where we land in a few years' time and how um, sort of regulatory bodies catch up or stay ahead of the curve, whichever way you Thank you,
2: might Do you think, yeah. um, you know, I, I agree with you, the regulatory hurdle is quite a big one. Does that open a gap for networks? And have you ever considered a network? You, you know, you sort of delegate some of that stuff to, to a network. I
0: don't know, Dave. I, I've, I've probably not looked at the network model that closely. I suppose in our early years, because we were a London based broker and we, we had enough relationships with insurers, at least, you know, let's talk about the market side of it. We had enough relationship with insurers from our previous experience to get access to the markets we needed to get access to directly ourselves. That probably took away one of the big benefits of being part of a network, um, where you know access okay. to market is, is, a, is a big selling point for them and you know huge value that they bring to it. You're right, though, I think in, in latter years, you know, as, as the networks have probably evolved their model and introduce some of these value-added services like compliance and, and other things, then you know, that, that clearly is something to consider. I think for us, don't know is the answer. I mean, I, I'm open-minded on the, on the subject. We've invested quite a bit in internal resource for compliance and, and regulatory matters. And we also engage the services of a specialist consultant that provides ad hoc you know, support and resource for, for things that we might need. But I, I I do take the point that networks could well be, you know, a good solution for that because um, you know, it is becoming a an ever increasing thing. But I just think that probably we need to look at people like Bieber and other, you know, trade associations and, and groups of groups of us to try to push back and make sure that the regulators don't overstep the mark, unnecessarily so. I think that's the key point here. It's not just about how do we cope with the the burden that we feel we have is it's probably starts before that. It's how do we push back to carve out what's not required? That's a challenge. It's not an easy one, but I think we need to do it. Otherwise these things just have a habit of snowballing and getting ever more, you know, difficult and yeah, taking yeah. too many participants out of the market.
2: Yeah. yeah. To Sarah's point about tech startups, I I, I kind of see that taking slivers off the market. I, you know, if you're the FD of a sort of decent-sized company, you, you probably need to delegate the complex matter of assessing your risks and placing them to a broker. But you can certainly get tech startups or just do this bit or just do that bit yeah. efficiently and quickly, and, You know, particularly in the personal lines area. So yeah. you can kind of see slivers getting you know to a degree direct line and what have you took a bottom sliver out of the whole broker market didn't they you know they did and you can see slivers coming off the sides as as that happens i'm also interested in you, you you mentioned you know fallout from the big brokers so is that is that just people getting tired of the awfulness of working in a great big corporation where decisions are taken 15 layers above you and possibly in a different country or is it the kind of the consolidator thing when small broker now finds himself part of big broker and just doesn't like it, or you know whether that's you know, I mean it doesn't doesn't need to be small broker, does it? Willis now finds itself part of you know whatever, and and you know that change throws people out. At, I suppose it's neither or both. I don't know. What 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 do you find?
0: Yeah, I, th- I think you know from from, from where we sit in the London market, for example, I think there's probably quite a lot of activity, quite a lot of moving. You know, the London market does tend to be quite small in terms of the the rumor mill and people talking yeah. and you know, exchanging opportunities and what have you so I, I think fundamentally uh, David I think it's to do with people get slightly disaffected or disillusioned by not feeling as though they make a difference you know yeah. that, they're, that they're part of something that's much much bigger therefore their skills or their what they believe they bring to the table is not recognized enough yeah. And I just feel they probably lack opportunities within that larger organisation that they naturally tend to look elsewhere and would typically, I suppose, look to the smaller, medium-sized brokers where they're going to have, you know, they're going to mm-hmm. be in a smaller pond, therefore make more of a difference. And that we, we've experienced that and we've we've had people join us directly as a result of that. So I think that that is certainly a factor. And I, And I think as more of these large, consolidations take place you mentioned the Willis and Aon one you know that is a huge business Marsh with JLT huge business yeah it wouldn't be for me but that's not to say that it's for everyone but I I can understand certainly why people would feel as though it's they're losing touch with you know what they want and what their opportunities should be
2: Mm.
0: so I I think that will carry on for a while
2: yeah Yeah. no I think you're right I think there's a you know a general sense of that in society generally isn't it everything's getting so big you you start to lose any feeling of control about anything absolutely yeah
1: I think the whole landscape is going to be a really interesting one to watch and um, actually your thoughts on it uh, and this conversation I've really enjoyed I think it's quite future thinking and uh, hopefully will be of of, of great interest to people listening Uh, so I really really thank you for your time I um, think it's been great
0: great thank you very much it's been great to talk to you guys actually thank you for listening to today's episode if you have enjoyed what you have heard have any questions or feedback please leave us a review and we will be sure to get back to you if you would like further information on how Boston Tullis Group can support your business or if you would like to join us on an episode
2: please do not hesitate to contact us